Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Dick Schmalenzi, Professor Emeritus of Economics and Management at the MIT Sloan School of Management and a former board chair here at RFF. Dick was a co-author on MIT's recent Future of Energy Storage study, which assesses the role that energy storage might play in a net-zero emissions electricity system. In today's conversation, he'll help us understand the key technologies, their relative strengths and weaknesses, and how they vary in terms of costs. We'll discuss key results from the study, some policy implications, and how today's policies can best support the technologies we need in the decades to come. Stay with us. All right, Dick Schmalitzi from MIT, welcome to Resources Radio. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. So, Dick, we're going to talk today about a report that you contributed to on the future of energy storage. But before we do that, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on energy or environmental issues. So how did you come to this field? You know, it's funny. I, I Among my uh, uh, influences in undergraduate and graduate school were uh, Maury Edelman, famous for work on oil, and, and uh, Paul McAvoy, less famous, but deservedly famous for work on natural gas. But they didn't capture my interest. It really happened much later when I came back to MIT in, in 1977, and there were just a lot of people doing interesting work on energy-related issues, and I kind of got caught up in all that. Uh, and my colleague, Paul Joskow, uh, kind of pulled me into work on electricity. And then later on, really after some time in Washington, I became fundamentally concerned about climate change, which of course gets you uh, immediately into energy slash environmental issues. And that's been a driver of my work for some years. Yeah, that's great. I mean, yeah, so many people who we have on the show come to energy and environment in all sorts of different ways, sometimes early in life and sometimes later. So um, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about this future of energy storage report from MIT. Uh, and it's, you know, one in a series of reports that MIT has issued over the years about the future of different energy technologies. To get us started, can you help us understand why energy storage is likely to play a much larger role in our energy system in the future, especially as we think about decarbonization? Happy to do it. And this was a, a real driver of the study. Um, as we decarbonize the electric power sector, uh, and hopefully the rest of the economy, but to decarbonize the electric power sector, most uh, plans call for very heavy increases in the use of wind and solar generation. Wind and solar generation are lovely, but they're intermittent. That is to say, their output varies over time, and it's imperfectly predictable. Uh, storage plays a potentially huge role in systems that are dominated by wind and solar generation because it, in effect, moves generation from one time to another. Uh, it, it, uh, buy low, sell high means you charge storage when there's a lot of energy, a lot of generation output, and you bring it to the system when there isn't enough. So storage now doesn't have much to do, but in the future, it will have a lot to do. That's great. And you and your co-authors in the report 
discuss a pretty wide range of technologies, and we're not going to have time to get into all of them. And we would certainly encourage people to to read the report to get all of the detail that's in there. But can you give us a thumbnail sketch of uh, some of the types of technologies that you consider in the report and how they stack up in terms of their ability to do things like store power and release power, as well as how they stack up in terms of their costs? Well, the cost is the is the key. Uh, and we by we, I mean, of course, the technical people who worked on the report uh, consider a wide range of technologies and proposed technologies. And uh, people with an interest in technology should look at those chapters. The, the technologies that seem plausible to play a role in 2050, which, which was our focus, uh, come in three groups, basically. The first group is lithium-ion batteries, and lithium-ion batteries are very good in terms of cost at expanding how much power they can deliver at any instant. Uh, you need that in electric vehicles, of course. But expanding the length of time over which they can deliver that power is expensive relative to alternatives. Now, the other group, I'd say, is typified by pumped hydro storage or pumped storage hydro as it's termed uh, uh, oddly enough it's relatively easy to expand the duration the length of time for which the system can deliver power because you're basically expanding the size of the uphill reservoir that's comparatively cheap uh, what's expensive is uh, delivering power you've got to build the turbines and the tunnels and all of that stuff so something like pump storage hydro and the use of hydrogen comes in there and some thermal storage technologies come in that category uh, is relatively cheap at uh, uh, being able to provide duration, being able to, to provide energy for long periods, uh, but is expensive in terms of power at any instant. Then there's an intermediate group. Um, typified by so-called flow batteries that's kind of intermediate on both dimensions of, of cost in terms of the cost of power and the cost of storage. I, I should say that storage is much more complicated than generation. Even a simple representation of storage takes uh, like seven parameters. I, I, I described two of them two cost parameters, but there are in principle seven of them, much more complicated than describing generation technologies. Um, and there are a wide range of things that people talk about, like compressed air, that our technical people say, no, that is just not going anywhere. It, it, it occurs a lot in casual discussions because they built two plants, but it, it doesn't seem likely to go anywhere. So the it's discussed in the technical chapters, but not in the modeling chapters with which I was mainly involved. Yeah. Well, so I know you're not focused on the technologies, but I think it might be helpful for our listeners to get just a, a, a one level deeper on a couple of these technologies. Uh, you mentioned pumped hydro a couple times, uh, as well as hydrogen. For those folks who don't know how pumped hydro works, can you kind of briefly describe just like what's involved in, in using it? And, and also for hydrogen, uh, what are the different ways that uh, you considered uh, to produce hydrogen in this study? Sure. Uh, uh, pumped hydro is an old technology. Uh, it may date back to the 20s or maybe even earlier. It, it was deployed uh, here and in Europe uh, 
when it was decided, like in the early 50s, that nuclear power was going to dominate. And the good thing about nuclear is the running cost is cheap. A bad thing about nuclear is it doesn't easily vary output to respond to changes in demand. So the idea was we'd use pumped hydro when generation would exceed demand, say at night, we'd use that excess power to pump water uphill from some low reservoir to some high reservoir. And then during the day or at other times when demand exceeded uh, nuclear output, we would uh, use that water uh, just in an ordinary turbine to generate electricity uh, to supply to the grid. There are facilities operating in the U.S. There are facilities operating in Europe. China is building a lot of them. Nobody else is. China is building a lot of them. They don't make a lot of sense now in the U.S. because we have natural gas plants that are very good at following uh, uh, supply-demand imbalances. So we don't much need pumped hydro in the U.S. now, although there are proposals to build some. Hydrogen is interesting. You, the, the Hydrogen comes in various colors that people talk about. Uh, it's mostly produced now from natural gas. Um, what we focused on, which we think is relevant down the road in mid-century, is hydrogen uh, produced by splitting water, by electrolysis. Because you can do that with, say, solar power or wind power. So you can produce hydrogen with no carbon emissions. And uh, it's cheap to store. It's cheap to store in tanks. It's even cheaper to store underground. So you can produce a lot of it and then use it uh, over time. So you can you know, produce weeks worth of hydrogen in storage and, and expanding the storage is relatively cheap. The problem is, <laughs> uh, with foreseeable changes in technology, that's going to be expensive. So it turns out not to be optimal to use hydrogen for long duration storage, which is what it's good for. Uh, relatively inefficient, that is to say you lose a lot of energy in going from uh, electricity to hydrogen and then back to electricity. That's so-called round-trip efficiency. You lose a lot, but, but here's the kicker. We explored a couple of studies reported in the Future of Storage study and in other publications, uh, colleagues reported experimenting with, well, suppose you used hydrogen to replace natural gas in industrial uses. And the, the modeled area is Texas, where there is a lot of natural gas used for heat. Suppose, they said, I wasn't involved in the, in the nuts and bolts of these studies, suppose you could use hydrogen instead well, you could store the hydrogen underground, or you could store it in tanks. Either way, it's pretty cheap to store. Um, and then you can generate hydrogen uh, by electrolysis. So you're mostly using it to replace natural gas. But what you're doing is the production of hydrogen becomes a flexible demand. So when you are short of generation, relative to demand, you produce less hydrogen. When you're long on generation relative to demand, you produce a lot of hydrogen. Well, if, if you do that, that's sort of a, I mean, it's the flexibility in demand uh, 
that uh, uh, sort of replaces storage. You're not using the hydrogen cycle as just a storage medium. You're using it as a flexible load to produce hydrogen for industrial use. That turns out, in at least some regions, to have a lot of promise. And again, there are underground caverns. You can store enough hydrogen to generate electricity for long periods of time, which is pretty useful because there are times when the wind just doesn't blow or it's cloudy for a long time. Uh, Lithium-ion batteries don't make a lot of sense um, beyond a few hours of, of, uh, of duration. So we find that very interesting, the use of hydrogen beyond electric power as a, as a flexible load, as they describe it, uh, to, to help uh, deal with uh, intermittency of generation. That's really interesting. Thank you for all those descriptions. That's all really, really helpful. Um, so again, you know, recognizing that we're glossing over tons of detail here, I'm hoping we can jump to some of the key results and the implications of those results that you and your co-authors find from some of the scenarios that you model out into the future. Sure. Let, let me let me describe roughly what we did, and then and then come to come to what we think it implies and some of the puzzles it poses. So. The, the technical people gave us high, medium, and low forecasts for the costs on seven dimensions, seven parameters for all these technologies in 2050. Now, there are, the National Renewable Energy Lab has some cost forecasts, and our people produce some independently. So here we have forecasts of uh, storage technologies around mid-century. And we say, well... <laughs> What role will they play in the power systems at that point? And to do that, you sort of have to model power systems at mid-century. So we have projections for demand, assuming there's a lot of electrification. And we have cost projections for wind and solar generation and for natural gas with carbon capture and sequestration, where you put the CO2 underground. So we looked at three US regions. We looked at Texas. We looked at the Northeast, New York and New England, and we looked at the Southeast, basically Georgia, Florida, um, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, most of that. And we said, first question, if those systems are efficient in 2050, um, what do they look like? Without constraints on carbon emissions, what do they look like? Well, the answer is they're very different. Uh, Texas, even with no pressure to reduce CO2 emissions would use a lot of wind and solar generation because Texas has good wind resources, as we know, and it has sunshine, as we know. So even without any constraints on carbon emissions, Texas would um, use a lot of wind and solar and as a consequence, have a lot of storage. Uh, in the Northeast, where I live, we do have actually wind, but it's very hard to put wind on shore because of the density of, of population. Offshore wind is not cheap, and there's not a whole lot of sunshine relative to other places. So if you just let the system alone, uh, we model, in 2050, it, in fact, that system would become more carbon intensive because we think the, the nuclear capacity operating in the Northeast would shut down and be replaced by natural gas. In the Southeast, uh, we think that some nuclear reactors would stay in place. 
and and it has not great wind but good sunshine and wood in 2050 all else equal no policy uh, become less carbon intensive then we imposed carbon emission constraints we said okay what would what would these systems look like and what would storage do in these three regions if let's say we start imposing carbon emission constraints and, and the way you do that in modeling is basically a carbon tax uh, or a carbon charge that's the first of all the easiest way and second of all the cheapest way as we all know to, to reduce carbon emissions so we we do that in each of the three regions and we we use different assumptions about costs and technologies and a first result is that you can take almost all the carbon out of these three systems without huge increases in costs and without really compromising reliability. Uh, e even if you have only lithium-ion batteries uh, uh, at your disposal. And the reason that works, and I say almost all, is that it, it turns out to be economical on our assumptions to retain natural gas capacity for times when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing for long periods of time. So you have natural gas capacity and you don't use it much. To go all the way to zero emissions means you have to replace that natural gas capacity. And it's very expensive to go that last few feet to zero emissions. So going to near zero or, uh, uh, yeah, going to near zero is turns out to be relatively inexpensive. I want to say a little bit in a second about how you do it, which is interesting in its own right. But another result is if you have long duration storage available at the kind of cost that people forecast, you use it. It substitutes for lithium ion, it substitutes for generation. Basically everything substitutes for everything else. Transmission substitutes because uh, uh, good wind and, and solar sites tend to be remote. So if you can build transmission, you lower costs. Storage substitutes for generation and, and long duration substitutes for short duration. One of the things we find, so I, I, I hope that makes sense as a, as a rough overview. Yeah, um, that's great. You know, can I actually just dig into one, yeah, one yeah. of those topics real quick, which is um, assumptions about transmission. Um, you know, all of the studies that I've seen in recent years come to very similar conclusions to what you described, that we can get to near zero at relatively low cost in the electricity system. But my uh, sense is that most of these studies assume that we are able to sort of build transmission wherever and whenever we want. So I'm wondering uh, how if that plays an important role in the modeling that you carried out and how well you think that might actually reflect reality. Well, it did play an important role and it, it varies by region. Uh, Texas has radically expanded its transmission capacity internally to bring wind uh, it to, to load centers. And to a, it seemed a reasonable approximation for 2050 to assume that Texas had fully built out its transmission system and could be treated as sort of one zone. In New England and New York, not so much, uh, because it is very hard to build transmission into New York City. If you don't take into account the difficulties of building transmission and the difficulty of citing wind resources, 
The system, to reduce cost, tends to want to build massive amounts of transmission into New York City and to put a lot of wind on shore. We basically constrained the system not to put wind on shore because you just can't do it in this region. And we limited the amount of transmission that can be built within the New York, New England region. Uh, we, we assumed, by the way, that, that there would be hydropower available from uh, Quebec, despite the enormous difficulty recently of building a line. But we didn't assume much expansion. We already get hydro from Quebec. We, we didn't assume expansion. In the Northeast, when you really uh, uh, clamp down on the carbon constraints, the system wants to build transmission uh, to link zones with a lot of wind and solar resource to zones that have less and have a lot of load. We think we modeled it, it reasonably. Um, the Southeast is intermediate between these two cases. Related studies that we cite that were done as part of and published before our report look at a more ambitious transmission expansion, uh, a national grid, so to speak, that would link Texas and the West and everybody else. And again, that study and other studies show great cost reduction potential from that transmission. Now, whether you can build it or not uh, is at the end of the day a political question. I mean, it's it's a, an intensely political question in the Northeast to bring hydropower from Quebec into, well, particularly into Massachusetts. We have aggressive decarbonization goals here, and the cost of meeting those goals without hydropower from Canada is going to be very high. Um, but voters in Maine have blocked the essential line, and you know, we may do exotic things, undersea cabling. It's not, uh, not entirely clear how it can be done. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks. I sort of got you off track there with that uh, transmission discussion. So please keep going on uh, some of the key results and implications on, on storage. Well, uh, one of the findings that is very robust and was at first surprising, and then not so much once we thought about it, is that as you tighten the carbon constraint, the wholesale price... Uh, of electricity is much more often at or near zero. Now that's a puzzle, right? Because the average price is going up as you impose tighter constraints on carbon emissions. But one of the responses to a tighter constraint on carbon emissions is you build more storage, of course, so that you can you can uh, uh, take uh, generation, as it were, into time periods when there is less wind and less sunshine. But another response, which you, you compare on the margin, is to just build more generation, right? You can deal with cloudy days either by storing energy on sunny days and using it on cloudy days or by building enough solar capacity that you're okay on cloudy days. And it turns out it's optimal to do both. Well, when you build more wind and solar generation capacity, the fraction of hours at which you've got excess generation goes up. And what that means is that you have a lot of zero price days. That we don't see that now. We don't we don't see that. That's a big deal. And it's a big deal potentially at the retail level. If you want to electrify the economy, uh, at, and decarbonize other sectors by electrifying them, 
you want uh, users to use electricity when it's free. The story I tell all the time is my son in, in Hawaii has an electric vehicle and he's charged something like 30, 35 cents a kilowatt hour to charge that vehicle even when the Hawaiian system is desperately trying to get rid of excess solar generation. Now that's crazy to use a technical term and it's going to become a more widespread problem. So what we uncovered and what a number of us are are, are scratching our heads about is how do you do retail rates? Because along with all those hours of near zero wholesale prices come more hours of very high prices, uh, right? The average has to go up. So if you have a lot of zeros, you're going to have a lot, of, lot more high prices. And to say, well, consumers should see the low prices, uh, that's true. But as we saw in Texas, telling consumers they should also see the high prices is just not on. So how do you provide insurance? How do you provide hedges? How do you come up with rates that encourage electrification and economy-wide decarbonization without imposing unbearable risks on ultimate consumers? I think that's a puzzle. I, I think it's soluble, but it's not a simple puzzle. Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, I, I would love to actually do a whole podcast just on that question alone. It seems like there's a million uh, interesting things to dive into there. I, I wish we, I wish, wish we had dived a little more deeply because I don't have a, I don't have a half an hour's worth of answers on that question. But <laughs> give us time. Okay, great. Uh, well, so yeah, we'll have you back some some other time to talk about it. So we are uh, nearing the end of our discussion, and I want to make sure to ask you a policy question. Um, you know, we've, we've had a lot of policy implications, but but a direct policy question uh, would be, you know, when you think about policies that um, government actors could take to incentivize the deployment of, um, of storage, we have different types of storage, right? We have some technologies that are quite mature, like lithium ion, and we have others that are much less mature, like, let's say, um, you know, metal air batteries or, uh, or some of these hydrogen, uh, green hydrogen technologies. In your view, what's the right mix of policies that we should be thinking about when it comes to incentivizing mature technologies versus incentivizing less mature technologies? Well, lithium ion uh, development is being driven by uh, the electric vehicle business. I any reasonable projection of the use of lithium ion in electric power systems is going to be dwarfed by what happens in electric vehicles. So, it, and manufacturers of vehicles and manufacturers of batteries have enormous incentives now to make lithium ion better. Uh, I don't see a federal role there at this point other than to encourage the, the continued deployment of electric vehicles. Other technologies uh, is where w we think R&D efforts and demonstrations for that matter should focus. Uh, particularly long duration technologies like, like those involving hydrogen or some thermal technologies that are fun to talk about but really haven't been done at scale. Um, the one exception to just R&D on technology development is using old power plant sites. You take a coal plant and you, we're not going to use it to burn coal anymore, but it, once you decide not to do that, you've still got the connection to the grid, uh, you've still got the turbines, uh, you've still got the boilers, 
And suppose you take generation off the grid and use it to heat something, uh, rocks, there are a lot of rocks in this world. You use it to heat the rocks, they stay hot for a while if you do it appropriately, and then you use that heat to generate steam to produce power in what used to be a coal-fired plant. Now, a number of folks in our study explored this possibility and think it has promise. Uh, if that's right, then it's sort of important now, before we tear these old, all these old plants down, to use one or two of them as a pilot project to show the potential, if it's there, of this technology of reuse of coal-fired plants as storage centers, uh, storage installations uh, for what would be long-term storage. So that's a deploy now and uh, as a pilot plant. For some of this more exotic stuff, uh, we're still in the you know, uh, lab plus demonstration uh, area, and we should be. There's no point in rushing, rushing development. Something like pumped hydro, it's a pretty well understood technology. It, deploying it now makes no sense. Power prices are relatively stable. And until we have a lot more wind and solar, there isn't going to be the buy low, sell high opportunity that we see in our modeling for 2050. Uh, so there's no point in encouraging the deployment of pumped hydro. And for the other technologies that really aren't ready, uh, we need pre-commercial uh, research development and in some cases demonstration. Notably, this, this old coal plant conversion opportunity needs to be demonstrated. Yeah, that's really interesting. That, I mean, that technology in particular, you could imagine being appealing to communities that are struggling from coal plant closures with jobs and tax revenue and stuff like that. It would have all of that. I, I, I don't know how it, it would have fewer jobs, I think, than, than attending to a coal plant, but it would have jobs and it would certainly have uh, property tax implications. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, Dick uh, Schmalensee from MIT, this has been a fascinating conversation. And, you know, as we've said a couple times, we're really just scratching the surface here. So uh, I'd encourage people to check out the, the full report, which we'll link to in the show notes of this conversation. And we want to close the conversation with the same question we ask all of our guests to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard that you think is great uh, and that you think our listeners might enjoy. So, uh, Dick, what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? Well, I'll just mention two things I saw this morning. Uh, the first was a piece in the New York Times about the impending environmental catastrophe uh, uh, associated with the shrinkage of the Great Salt Lake in Utah. Really quite quite astonishing and disturbing as part of the drought or as, a, as one of the consequences of the drought that has engulfed the West for some time. And the second was a, an opinion piece in a in a publication put out by Yale, I don't remember the, the, the name, but a number of my MIT colleagues make the point that, you know, we're all consumed right now with worrying about the war in Ukraine and its implications for economic growth and inflation and everything else, which kind of takes our eyes off the climate problem. The climate problem persists. The climate problem uh, really is an existential problem for the species, more or less. Uh, and yeah, the war is important. And yeah, we need to pay attention to it. But if we take our eye off the climate problem now, the consequences uh, will, will uh, be potentially disastrous. So those two things caught my, caught my eye this morning. Um, I think both are important. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And um, just so folks know, we're recording on June 8th. Uh, so the recommendations might be a week or two uh, out of date by the time you hear them, but we will have links to them. And I'm sure the content will still be relevant, uh, whether you're listening uh, on June 15th or later in the month or any time during the summer. Um, so once again, Dick Schmalensee from MIT, thank you so much for coming onto Resources Radio, helping us understand the technologies uh, and the key results that you and your colleagues have come up with with the future of energy storage. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future, or RFF. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me. Daniel Raby. Join us next week for another episode.